Forgive me, I want to talk about math for a minute. Um, some of us say, oh no, and some of us say, okay, cool. Um, the question is, how do you multiply negative numbers? So, uh, two times a negative two is negative four, right? Negative four. So this is always a challenge in figuring out, is the result going to be negative or positive, right? And so you'll help me with this. A positive times a positive is a positive. A positive times a negative is a negative. Great, you're good at this. A negative times a positive is a negative. And a negative, this is a tough one, negative times a negative is positive. Okay. So how do you remember this? Well, let me teach you what I was taught as a kid. This is how you multiply negative numbers. A friend of my friend is my friend, right? A friend of my enemy is my enemy, right? So if I've got an enemy and I look out there and there's a friend, they they look like they're getting along well. Well, that's clearly not my friend, right? How about an enemy of my friend is my enemy, right? This is my friend. And if you're going to attack my friend, now you're my enemy too. And an enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? So if there's my enemy and they're attacking my enemy, you know, which team do you root for? Well, you say Michigan State or whoever's playing U of M, right? Or, right? An enemy of my enemy is my friend. So this is a great way to remember math. Sadly, it's how we live. Sadly, this is how we go through life, right? And, and uh, this is, we, we say, you know, if, if I look online and this person likes a person that I like, then I think I must like that person, And I had the experience this week. I heard somebody online criticizing somebody that I thought needed to be criticized. And I thought, well, that must be a pretty good person, (laughs) right? Because they're against the same person I'm against. Sadly, we do this. So I want to take a little bit of time today to think about what does Jesus want and to pray that Jesus would teach us, that he would intercede for us even today to teach us his heart. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you are always good, that you are love, that you are righteous and just. You are what we so often fail to be. We ask that you would teach us today. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would teach us with the heart of Jesus, that you would help us to hear your voice, that you would make us more like our God, that he would be praised. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Just say a word about uh, the setting for January for us. We've been thinking about discipleship and thinking of these five great relationships. The, a, discipleship is, a disciple of Jesus Christ is someone who confesses genuinely and fully declares, says, this is what's true in my life. God is my Father. He is the one who lovingly disciplines me. Jesus Christ is my Savior and Lord, and he is the one who sends us in the world. The Holy Spirit is his presence and his power in me, together with all God's people, to grow his kingdom in all creation. So thinking of these five great relationships, and the three weeks we've done so far is looking at God as our Father, Jesus as Savior and Lord, the Holy Spirit as his power and presence. Today we look at doing this together with all God's people, and then next week, we'll look at growing his kingdom in all of creation. So today we spend some time
looking at this idea of doing this together with all God's people. Um, here's the title. The title today is uh, As God is One. We're in John 17. But let me first say, um, I speak to you today as a novice at this. I wish I could say that this is something that, oh, I've got a track record. I can tell you, I've learned this. And I speak to you today as somebody who says, well, here's what Jesus said. (laughs) I'm thankful my dad years ago said, the best people to teach you technology are the people who struggled to figure it out, but now understand, right? Because they know what it's like for you to figure it out too. Well, maybe you can take some comfort in me saying, I will teach you just what I see Jesus saying, even though I'm not very good at it. And so I wish I could come with a track record, but, but it is what he calls us to. And so we look at his words today. So John 17, I encourage you to have that in front of you. I will have it on the screen too, but let me just say a word about John 17. We know that Jesus prayed a lot. We're told over and over again, he prayed. Um, and sometimes he prayed a long time. He would pray all night long. He would go off in the desert to pray so there are no distractions. He prayed a lot. But actually, we don't know much about his prayers. (laughs) Maybe this is why the disciples said, Jesus, could you teach us to pray? Because we know you're praying all the time, but we don't know much about it. And most of what we know about his prayers are these little, short, one, two, three sentence summaries of things. Except for John 17. And here is his longest recorded prayer by far. And he says, I want you to know. And, and John, when he wrote this down, said, I want you to know the heart of Jesus in prayer. And so the parts we're not going to look at, verses 1 to 5, he prays for himself. And this great prayer that says, Father, take me back into the glory that I had before the creation. I want to join that again. Would you glorify me with that glory? In the next set of verses from 6 to 19, he prayed for his first disciples. He says, I pray for these these people, and would you protect them, Father? Would you make them holy? Would you sanctify them for the work that is ahead of them? And then, from 20 to 26, he prays for future generations of disciples. He says, now I'm not just praying for the people in front of me. I'm praying for all the people who will believe down the road based on their direct testimony, based on the words they write down, I'm going to pray for all these people. And that is, he's going to pray for the church. And the church is Jesus' followers throughout the world and across all time. He says, here it is, he's praying for all the people who will be known as his, who are truly the children of God because of Jesus. And so, of course, this includes Jesus' followers among us. Right? And, and, and so if you haven't yet come to faith, this is, this is a description of God's heart, of what God's people are to be. And for those of us who know him, this is his heart. This is when Jesus stopped and he thought ahead. And, and in his wisdom, he could think ahead to people like us. And he says, here's what they're going to need. God, this is what I want for them. So John 17, starting at verse 20. My prayer is not for my current disciples alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one 
as we are one, I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them as you've loved me. So let's stop there for a second, the first part of this. It's clear what is heavily on Jesus' heart. He says, here's my prayer, that all of them may be one. He prays again, that they may be one. And he says again, I want them to come to complete unity. It's clear what Jesus' heart was. He says, I'm praying for my future church, that they would be one, that they would be united to a complete unity, he says. And in fact, he says this, I want them to be one as we are one. Is that astounding? Right? Do you have an idea of, of the Trinity? One being, one God, and three persons. One being in three persons. So that if you could destroy one part of the Trinity, the whole thing would be gone. There's no way to get rid of one part of the Trinity and for the others to remain because there's only one being. He says, that's what I'd like my church to be like. <laughs> that's a dramatic prayer. He says, I want them to be one as we are one. And then he it gives this other expression of it. May they also be in us. So you get this? So you, so you got the Trinity, right? This three persons in one being. And he said, I want the church to be in there too. I want them part of this perfect unity of the Godhead. And here's why I want that to happen, he says. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. Father, this, if this happens, then the world will see that you, God, my Father, have sent me as God the Son into the world. And again, he says, then the world will know that you sent me. Dramatic words. I mean, this is a bold prayer. Things I can't imagine. Yet he says, this is what I long for. And my Father, will you help them do this? And then this such a dramatic prayer. The, the last line then the world will know that you have loved them even as you've loved me. Catch that? As God the Father loved God the Son, he says, I want the world to know that's how I love my church. This is dramatic, right? This expression of, of what Jesus longed for, what he says the love of God is like. He says, the unity of the Godhead seen in the unity of the church is unmistakable evidence of the presence of God in them. Right? If there's, if there's the unity of the Godhead overflows into unity in the church, this is evidence, unmistakable evidence that God is among them, that God is there. Jesus prays for this deep unity. If we go on to verse 24, Father, I want those you've given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you've given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know, my disciples know, that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Jesus says, here's my heart. My heart is that the church would be with me. And he says, 
that I've made you known, that phrase, in order that the love you have for me may be in them. So not only, he says, does he want the church to be aware of God's love for them that's like the love the Father has for the Son. He says, I want that actual love to be in them. That that's how they love each other. With that same love that the Father has for the Son. And he says, and that I myself may be in them. Unmistakable. God's big plan is Emmanuel. God's big plan is God with us. This is what it's all about. He says, here's my goal for my people is that I would be with them. They would be with us. They would be in the love of God. See, God's people are to be with the lovingly lovingly united triune God. That's where we're to live. And so Jesus says to live there, we must become lovingly united with all God's people. You see, you can't enter into the unity of the Godhead and then have our divisions. (laughs) Inside the unity of Godhead, well, there's this part over here, this is for this denomination, and this part over here is for this denomination, and here's for the people from this tradition and this background and this socioeconomic status. You can't do that. There aren't places in God. The unity is so rich that you can't cut out parts and say, well, this is where our part is and your part. If we're going to be in the unity of the Godhead, We have to be engaged in the unity of his people because you can't divide God. I'd express the big idea this. Jesus' plan is for all his people to live in loving unity together in Christ. That's his plan. He says, here's my goal. Here's my prayer that all of my people will live in loving unity together in Christ because that matches our reality in God. Because that's what it is. If God is in people, then his people in a deep reality are united, even when we choose to be separate. Okay, so here's a drawing. Thanks to Karen with this. What do you see? What was that? Yeah, a bunch of different blocks. Some are falling over. Some are on their own. Some are scattered about. When we look at Christianity, we might see something like this, right? I, I don't know if what, what you see. Sometimes I see this, that I, that I see a lot of individual parts, right? We try to stick those parts together, but, you know, wooden blocks aren't magnetic. I'd like to think that they just, they get close to each other and boom, now they're stuck together. <laughs> but often wooden blocks, you kind of hold them together and, and, and some of them are clumped together. And you notice a lot of these clumps are, are based on similarities, you know, similar colors, a little bit of different one every now and then, but mostly they're clumped by similarities. Sometimes these blocks are, are falling apart. Um, some of the blocks are all alone. And if you watched, often they end up regrouping when it gets hard. <laughs> well, this was a good group to hang with for a while, but yeah, you know, maybe I'll move or maybe the whole, the whole tower says, no, let's, let's, just, let's just regroup because it's gotten a bit challenging. That's what we often see. But we're not really seeing reality. Because reality is more like this. There's a hidden reality where every genuine Christian has the same spirit inside. It has the same blood flowing through, the same lifeblood. Every genuine Christian has the same single spirit in everybody. 
And it's not, oh, you get a little bit of the Spirit and you get a little bit of the Spirit. You can't split up the Spirit. (laughs) The same Spirit dwells in every one. Right? So we are really all connected in a single whole. Right? And and this this is the vision that God has. That's why Paul says in Ephesians, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Make every effort to keep what is already there. Because the deep reality is, if you are in Christ, if I'm in Christ, it's the same Spirit in all of us. Not a little bit of the same Spirit, and so now we all live on our own and we should try to come together. It's the same Spirit that lives in all of us. That's the deep reality. So just to quote more of the passage, Paul says, as a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. These powerful words. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. And then here's where he says it. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. And here's why. Because there's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. He says, for those who are in Christ, well, there is only one Christ. (laughs) Those who have the spirit, well, there's only one spirit. Those who are loved by God are loved by the one God and invited into his loving communion, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. See, Jesus' plan is for all his people to live in loving unity together in Christ because that matches our reality in God. Okay, I'm going to show you a picture of my hand. There's nothing particularly interesting about my aging hand, um, except uh, you might notice, and people have noticed this on me over the last uh, month or two, um, I have a couple of black fingernails. Um, so uh, this is a quick uh, puzzle. Which hand is this, my left or my right? Left hand. I'm right-handed. Okay, I'll introduce my other prop. It's a hammer. I'm right-handed. <laughs> Turns out it's not a good idea to hit your fingers with a hammer, <laughs> which is why I've got some black fingernails, right? And, and so I, I can tell you about the times that I did this. Uh, you know, I, I'm not the most able at doing these things, but I'm, I'm working at some stuff and then bam, oh, that hurts. But let me tell you what I didn't do. My left hand didn't say, right hand, what in the world are you doing? Why are you against me? You need to be hit and I'm going to go after you, right? There was no anger. It was, this really hurts. And my right hand didn't say, well, don't get upset. I didn't mean to do it. (laughs) My right hand said, wow, that hurts. (laughs) I'm not going to hit you with a hammer again. I'm going to do everything I can to avoid it. Well, I did it a second time, so I'm not that quick, right? Why? Didn't my hands get angry with each other? Why didn't they choose to separate? Because they're part of the same body, right? There was no accusation that says, I think you secretly meant to hurt me. (laughs) And if you had been doing your job better, well, in some ways that's true. If you'd been doing your job better, I wouldn't have gotten hurt. And my right hand didn't say, well, grow up, left hand, it'll heal. It'll be fine, right? That's right, just a couple of black spots, right? Because my hands are a part of the same body, my hands didn't attack each other. And they didn't ignore the pain. Right? 
they both said this is problematic because something we did caused harm to us. Not something I did caused harm to you and you need to forgive me. And not something you did hurt me and you'd better change your ways. We were one body. Now, let me say this. A body only attacks itself when it is very sick. But there are times when that happens. Right? There are times when a body does attack itself. One of the classic things, autoimmune disorders. Right? Where our body starts to attack itself. And that happens sometimes, but it's not normal. It's not normal to attack ourselves. Right? My right hand does not want to hurt my left hand. But sometimes it does happen in the body. But when it happens in the body, what do we do? We do the least harmful thing we can to prevent further attacks and further harm and to restore right relationships. We don't say, well, here's a part of the body that's causing the trouble. Let's just cut it off. We say, no, we, we want to stop the harm, stop the trouble, but in the least harmful way that we can because it's one body. And so this obviously has application for how we understand the people of God together. Sometimes we do cause harm to each other. Sometimes there is real pain. And if we can understand how to see this as being one body, where when one part hurts, we all hurt. And we never want to do that again. And when we are hurt by another part of the body, our first assumption isn't, well, you're trying to get me. (laughs) You're trying to cause trouble. And so then when we try to say there is harm being done, we say, how do we, how do we stop this? Always in the love that God has for his broken people. How do we do this in love? The love that God has. Now, what's different from the human body is human relationships. I'd say this, nothing unites and motivates and satisfies people as easily and cheaply as a shared enemy. Right? There is nothing like this to so quickly, so easily motivate people, satisfy them, oh, we're the good side. Nothing does it so easily and cheaply. And so we keep splintering. Humanity keeps doing it. And so as long as we have the shared enemy and it's working for us, that's great. Sports teams do it. We're going to conquer this other team and this rivalry and that motivates us. Remember how they insulted us last year and we're going to conquer them, right? But we do this in other organizations too. We do it politically. We do it in the church. We do it in families that we keep splintering. I mentioned in the email this week this this, uh, wonderful, challenging statement from C.S. Lewis. He was actually talking about universities. And he says, here's what I see happening in universities, which I see happening throughout life. We gather around us people who are like us, who think like us, who agree with us. And then we tell each other the worst thing that we've heard from all the other people, right? Have you heard about the liberals and what they're doing, right? Have you heard about the conservatives and what their plans are? And whatever the worst is that we've heard is what we keep telling each other. And we begin to think... That's what they're like. In fact, that's only the tip of the iceberg. They're so much worse than even that. (laughs) Wherever people are, this keeps happening. And I've lived through it. I've experienced it. So I'll tell you about a project I was at at Michigan State. We had uh, a project that had two teams. One was a science team and one was a social studies team. And you might know that these two groups can see the world differently. I was on both teams. 
I met in an office in Erickson Hall that had a whiteboard on it. And apparently not many people use the whiteboard because when we would meet, I would meet with the science team and we would use the board and write down our ideas and what we're going to do. And then I would meet later in the week with the social studies team and they'd look at the board and they'd laugh and think, oh, those funny science people, right? And then we'd do our work for the social science team and then I come back to the science people. They look at what the social studies team said. Oh, those funny people. What are they thinking, right? We gather together with the people we agree with And then we look at the others and think, they are so confused. And so I had this experience again. I was in between. Um, I was a faculty member, but not not a tenure stream faculty member. But then I worked with people who were adjunct professors. And they tended not to like the faculty. And they felt like the faculty didn't like them. So I came to them once, to these, these adjunct professors, and said, here's an idea. What I didn't realize is they thought the idea had come from the faculty above me. And they didn't like it at all. And I was so confused. Why are you against this idea that I have? You normally, you know, we go along with each other really well in this. And then I realized they thought it was from the other people. And they didn't trust it. They're not here for our good, right? We do this all the time. And sadly, I see this happen in families. And sadly, I see it happen in the church. We gather together with people who are like us and then we tell the worst thing that we've heard about the other people and it motivates us, it satisfies us, it unites us. So I think this is why Jesus said, and Alan, you made reference to this earlier, Jesus said, I pray that the church would be one that the world may believe that you have sent me. That you would have a kind of unity that the people look at and say, that's weird, (laughs) that's not usual. See, let me say, make this statement. Unity is completely unconvincing if it just reflects sameness and natural friendliness. That doesn't mean anything, right? When the unity is just it's a one people, one tribe, or one nation, or one denomination, when it's people who, who look and act and think and talk the same, when it's people who are nice to me and we have the same enemy, when you have unity that's based on that, it doesn't tell you anything. That's normal, That's how the world works. But when there is unity that is across big differences, if you heard this expression, it's like a turtle on a fence post. If you see a turtle on a fence post, what do you know? Somebody put it there. The turtle didn't find a way to climb up the fence post and sit on the top. It didn't get good at jumping. It didn't fly down from above. Somebody put the turtle on the fence post. Jesus said, When you see this kind of unity, people know this is not the way humanity works. When they see this kind of unity, they say there's something outside them that's making this happen. And that's where Jesus prayed based on this idea that the unity of the Godhead seen in the unity of the diverse church is unmistakable evidence of the presence of God in them. He says if people see this, they say God must be doing something because that's not how people work. Now, I do want to say, this is true and it's real. And yet it is sad how challenging it is for God's people to do this. And I go both ways on it. Sometimes I think, well, Jesus wasn't very good at praying because it doesn't seem to work real well. (laughs) But the other side says, Jesus knew this would be hard. And so he said, God, would you help the church with this? But there are all sorts of dividing lines, right? 
in the church, we see all these dividing lines. We see, well, we're going we're gonna to side with God's sovereignty and we're going to side with human freedom and we're not going to get together because you're wrong. And in fact, I've heard some of your people say, well, I've heard what some of your people say. Right? It's, the church is divided over, over the sacraments, right? Over baptism and, and communion. The church divides over our views of the Bible and the Holy Spirit's work and what the Spirit can do. And this will get challenging. The church divides over gender roles and issues related to LGBTQ and and abortion and political parties. And the church says, well, some of us are celebrating today and some of us are really upset today. And so, well, it'd be easier if we went to our own corners, right? Church divides over the history of conflict between peoples. As we heard about the house party saying, yeah, here are people that their peoples have a history of hurting each other. And I think whatever current social categories are, and this is where each generation is going to have its own social categories it's going to struggle with. Even when we agree on matters of first importance in the gospel. We say, we agree that Jesus is the only Savior, and it's his death that rescues us through faith alone. And yet we'll still break fellowship with people because say, but these other things we disagree with you on. And I know in this room are people who have felt excluded by the church and maybe even among us feel excluded by the church for secondary things. Jesus said, I pray that they would all be one as we are one because there's so much that threatens to divide them. I've experienced it. Very small way to compare to what other people have. But even right now, I'm going through an experience where people say, as Christians, we don't think we want to be associated with you because of the secondary issue. Yeah, you believe the gospel and that kind of thing, but we won't be associated with you because of this. And I struggle to make sense of that. And yet I've done it too. So here's a confession. I have lived so much of my life with more fear of unity with the wrong people than of disunity with the people I should have loved. I've been more afraid of calling somebody my friend that maybe it'll turn out I shouldn't have called them my friend, right? Maybe they really were heretical and maybe, but I was more afraid of that than dividing with people that I should have loved. So here's a question. Would you rather divide when you should have united or unite when you should have divided? Which concerns you more? I've confessed mine. I was more concerned about uniting when I should have divided. So I said, I'm not going to make that mistake. So if I make a mistake, because we're not going to get it right, we already know we're not going to get it right all the time. So which error would you rather make? And so here's where I am deeply humbled by this, sobered in confession. Jesus' prayer shows that he was more concerned about people like me. He said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray against my natural tendency. Jesus says that about my natural tendency because my tendency is to say I would rather divide than risk having united too much. And Jesus said, here's my prayer, that all of my people would be one. Now, to be clear, a few things I want to say. We're called to unity, not uniformity. Right? We're not called to uniformity. There's one body with many different parts. So one of my, my favorite illustrations is antagonistic muscle groups. 
right? Muscle groups that work against each other. And so, right, in, in my leg, there's one muscle that makes my, my, my foot go out and another muscle that makes my foot come back, right? Guess what? You can't walk without both of them. You can't stand without both of them. But when they're not in coordination, you're in a lot of pain. <laughs> when they're just working against each other, saying, i got to get that leg straight, no, i got to bend that leg, and, oh, well, you're fighting against me, and we, we go to battle. We have to have antagonistic muscle groups. They just have to learn to work together <laughs> and to appreciate what each brings. So to say it again, unity, when we have uniformity, is nothing special. There's nothing interesting about that, right? So we're called to unity, not uniformity. We should still develop convictions on controversial things. We should still grow in saying, I really believe this is true, and, and if you're willing to talk with me, I would like to wrestle this out. And I'd like to convince you, and I'd like you to try to convince me, and let's learn. We should still develop convictions, rather than just saying, oh, let's not worry about anything we disagree about. And so related to that, the ideal is not continuous agreement. That's not the ideal thing, to say, oh, we just always agree. That's not the ideal. right? And, and the ideal is not avoiding confrontation. right? The ideal is we're called to correct, to rebuke, to encourage Right? So, so we are to be one, but to wrestle our way through it in love and directness and listening and humility and learning and growing together. Amen. The command is to love as God loves. Right? And what does it mean to love as God loves? I just want to highlight three phrases out of 1 Corinthians 13. First of all, love believes all things. And here's what love believes. There is more good than I know in the other person. Doesn't look good to me, but there is more good in them than I know. This assumption that I don't know their motives. <laughs> and I bet their motives aren't as bad as I'm thinking they are right now. Love takes the risk to believe better of people than what I'm inclined to believe. Love hopes all things. And I love this. Love believes God is still working in people and in me. Rather than saying, well, look at that. That's what kind of person that is. I don't want to be associated with a person like that. <laughs> Love says, I have a hope that the God who made the universe is still working in this person's life, and I think he can do something about it. Right? Love hopes all things. And love endures all things. We must forgive as we have been forgiven. Right? This is what love is. This is what the love of God is like. This is what it's like when he deals with us. So loving as God loves is to commit to relationship, expecting the best in others. It's being quick to listen, quick to apologize, quick to forgive, and to continue together to pursue truth, justice, and mercy. God prayed, Jesus prayed, I want my people to be one. I want them to grow in this kind of love and depth of relationship. So the application is really very simple to understand. <laughs> another to do it, is to pursue loving unity with all God's people in Christ. And here's central to how to do it, I think, as, as Jesus describes in this in his prayer, it's to know deeply and personally the outstanding love of God. To say, we know the amazing love of God, and if we are, are, are gripped by this amazing love of God, it will change us. right? To know this astounding love of God in the Trinity and get this, how did the love of God and the Trinity get expressed? The Father said to the Son, I need you to sacrifice. 
I need you to break from me in some way because you're going to take on the sin of other people. This is the love of God for the son. We say that's an astounding kind of love. That's not what I expect. And then the son says, okay, father, I will do what you say. Right? It's knowing deeply and personally the astounding love of God for you and for me. Do you know this astounding love that says, given the God who knows my heart, there's no hiding. There's no hiding. He knows it all. And yet he loves me the way he loves his son. Do you get that? God loves each one of his children in Christ with the same love he loves the son. And then to be gripped deeply and personally, to be astounded by this love of God for every other believer, right? This one that I struggle to love, God loves the way he loves his son. And that's amazing. To know this love is to be transformed by that love. Jesus said, in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. He says, I want them to be with me, to to know me and my love so that my love will be in them, that they would be transformed by this. And then in that love to pursue truth and holiness together. So we're to pursue loving unity with all God's people in Christ. And I want to see it in two places. One is in our community. In our community across our differences. And in this sense, I think, Alan, as you said earlier, this is why I'm convinced God loves our vision (laughs) to say, let's pursue diversity in Christ. Let's pursue a unity that's in this diversity that says, this is what God is doing. God says, every tribe, I want them all. I want them all. And if he wants all that, why wouldn't we want all that? Would you bring all of that together among us? We long for that. I'm convinced he loves the vision that says, let's find unity in Christ where we value what each new person brings. We want to pursue it in our community with a deep and enduring expectation of God's presence through every one of his people. To believe the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God is present in each of his people and to expect that he will be at work in that. He will express himself through that. It's always to be growing in humility. To recognize it's not about me. It is not about my side winning, about my agenda, about, as John the Baptist said, I must become less, that he would become greater. And it's always recognizing the limits of my knowledge. 1 Corinthians 13 says, know that you only know what's in a mirror, right? Your knowledge is so limited. My knowledge is so limited. We need to pursue unity in our community. And we need to pursue loving unity with all other communities in Christ, near and far. Right? Jesus prayed for loving unity in Christ. He didn't say that every human being would be united, but this is the desire of God. But he says his prayer was for those who would believe. Among his people, he says, I want them to be one. And he says, all, all God's people, that all people would be together. Not just the ones that I know and have gotten used to and say, here's God's working among us, but to say in the people I don't know, And one of the ways that we can do that is when we are aware of other communities of faith, other people who aren't part of our group, here's what we could do. We could tell the best we know about them rather than the slander. Rather than saying, you should hear about what that other Christian group has done 
and tell each other the worst. We should say, you should hear the goodness of what God is doing among a people. Yeah, there are things we disagree about and there are things that aren't great, but we're going to praise the bride of Christ to each other. And I'm learning. I need to do this, especially when we're slandered. That, that we're to answer kindly when slandered rather than join in the mudslinging. Right? And, and we need to remember that truth without love is just noise. And we keep thinking, but I got to tell the truth. But truth without love is just noise, a clanging symbol, right? It's just a noise that gives you a headache. We need to speak truth. And yet we need to do it in love, first of all. So I have to say this. Oh, the questions this raises. <laughs> so there are times when we say, you know what? We need to part company. When do we do that? And how do we do that? What are we to do about the harm that has been done? And walking with people and, and saying real harm has been done between genuine Christians. What are we to do about that? What does forgiveness mean when the harm is still there? Hard questions. How do we pursue justice and righteousness in mercy and love united when we disagree? And so many more. This raises so many questions about what does it look like to do this? And I'm convinced that's why Jesus prayed to the Father for us. <laughs> he said, this is going to be hard. God, it will take you to make this happen. And this is what I love about John 17. We're told Jesus continues to intercede for us so we can be certain that he is still interceding for us, that all his people would be one in God. See, Jesus' plan is for all his people to live in loving unity in Christ because that matches our reality in God. So the statement, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And as Jesus said, then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. I'd like to end this, this uh, message just by reading again Jesus' prayer. And to hear this, as his prayer for us. My prayer is not for my current disciples alone, Jesus said. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Let's take a moment in silence as you listen. Invite the, the, the music team to come on up, but let's continue in just silence as you listen and pray to our God. <laughs>